Good morning. Oh, it's nice to see your faces today. Uh, good morning to those of you who are tuning in online. It's nice to have you with us as well. Uh, Brendan has promised to have a great message. He hasn't heard it yet, so now I have to deliver. Uh, and so this could go well. Uh, we'll see. We get to talk about confession today and community. And we're actually going to begin with looking at uh, a guy named Dietrich Bonhoeffer. And I want to begin by drawing your attention to three quotes by this little German theologian, uh, each taken from his book, Life Together, which was written in 1939. So here's the first quote from Dietrich. In confession, there takes place a breakthrough to community. Sin wants to be alone with people. It takes them away from the community. The more lonely people become, the more destructive the power of sin over them. And then he says on the next paragraph, uh, in confession, there occurs a breakthrough to the cross. The root of all sin is pride, superbia in Latin. I want to be for myself. I have a right to be myself, a right to my hatred and my desires, my life and my death. The spirit and flesh of human beings are inflamed by pride, for it is precisely in their wickedness that human beings want to be like God. Confession in the presence of another believer is the most profound kind of humiliation. And then Bonhoeffer says, the next paragraph, confession is conversion. Bonhoeffer, if you didn't know, was a young and rising German theologian in the years leading up to the Second World War. He was deeply committed to theology and deeply loving of his native Germany, and so he watched with some despair as the church was swept along with the rise of National Socialism. He watched as the state came to replace the church, as the Fuhrer replaced Christ, as Nazi rituals replaced Christian theology, uh, Christian liturgy, and as political ideology supplanted theology. The rising theology of the time held that the German people were the chosen race, that God had blessed them as unique bearers of his will on earth, and that this gave them God-sanctioned right to impose that will on others. Now, in the midst of such an environment, Bonhoeffer advocated quite trenchantly for a return to the church's foundation in Christ, and because of this, he paid for it. He was removed from teaching posts, he was banned from pulpits, and he and other faithful Christians like Martin Niemöller and Helmut Thielicke formed a group called the Pastors' Emergency League, and with it, a group called the Confessing Church. And this is a body of German believers who refused ever to bend the knee to national socialism. Increasingly alienated, there was a brief season where Bonhoeffer led an illegal preacher's seminary in a small town called Finkenwalde. It was there that he largely wrote the material that would become his book, Life Together. And if you're going to read one book by Bonhoeffer this year, I think it should be Life Together. That's the book to read. Now, eventually, Bonhoeffer's convictions led him to join one of the plots to remove Hitler from power. It was an assassination attempt that failed and resulted in Bonhoeffer's arrest and imprisonment and concluded with his rather malicious murder by the Nazis on the 9th of April, 1945, just a month before the end of the war. See, the Germans knew the war was ending, but they still wanted to clean up the things they didn't like, and Bonhoeffer was one of them. So Bonhoeffer's um, story is informative, and we're going to return to it a little later, but it contextualizes his comments on confession, because he speaks with a double meaning. When he talks about confession, he's speaking both to you, the church, and he's also speaking to Germany as well. So let's go back to that first quote about breakthrough to community. In confession, there takes place a breakthrough to community. 
Sin wants to be alone with people. It takes them away from the community. The more lonely people become, the more destructive the power of sin over them. There's something alienating about political ideologies and alienating about sin. The next quote says the same kind of thing. In confession, there occurs a breakthrough to the cross. The root of all sin is pride, this superbia. I want to be for myself. I have a right to be myself, a right to my hatred and my desires, my life and my death. The spirit and flesh of human beings are inflamed by pride, for it is precisely in their wickedness that human beings want to be like God. Confession in the presence of another believer is the most profound kind of humiliation. And once again, I think you need to hear that Germany is in focus here as well as other believers. He has something in mind. And then, of course, he says this wonderful phrase that confession is conversion. So let me be as explicit as I can. Not only does Bonhoeffer want the church to confess sin to our God and to one another, but he also wants Germany to confess the truth about who God is. Loss of community, the danger of pride, and the deconversion of the German populace are large in view. He might as well have written, Dear Germany, I want you to confess again that Christ is Lord and not Hitler, and be converted out of your pride and your sin and your alienation. So this is all set up for us to talk about John on conversion. And Bonhoeffer provides us with a wonderfully suitable place to begin this discussion this morning, especially in light of his double meaning. Because John also invites us into a state of renewed confession, a truth-speaking that creates community and calls to our world. So I want us to take some time now and look at our primary text, which is 1 John 1, verses 5 to 10. I might ask us to read it together, and would you please stand with me this morning, and we'll read these words together. So here we go. This is the message we have heard from him and announced to you that God is light, and in him there is no darkness at all. If we say that we have fellowship with him and yet walk in the darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light, as he himself is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus, his Son, cleanses us from all sin. If we say that we have no sin, we are deceiving ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say that we have not sinned, we make him a liar, and his word is not in us. You may be seated. Now, we are together in the book of First John, working our way through the lovely teachings of this fatherly figure who wants to safeguard our abiding, to invite us into intimacy with Christ, and to secure our joy. In broad strokes, the opening of the letter focuses on this business of confession, especially as it touches on community. Um, the middle section of the letter focuses on abiding, and he closes the letter on love or agape. So we are in this, these six verses today that focus on confession, especially confession touching on community. And before I talk about the theology of community and confession, I simply want us to do some attentive reading together to the text. So we're going to focus pretty closely on this text for a few moments. The first thing I want you to notice is that there's a bit of a pattern. The verses alternate between 579 and 68 and 10. So let's show this first. If you see 5, 7, and 9, these are verses quite clearly about God, all right? The message we've heard announced you, God is light. If we walk in the light, if we confess our sins, things that God wants us to do. 
Now, the parallel then is 6, 8, and 10, which shows us verses about us. If we say, if we say, if we say. Very clearly repeated pattern going back and forth between the verses in these texts. And actually, what we can do is we can rearrange them to draw out the argument this a little more clearly. So let's go just to show verses 5, 7, and 9. And I think you'll see there's a pretty straightforward argument here. This is the message we've heard from him and announced to you that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. Now, if we walk in the light as he himself is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus' his son cleanses us from all sin. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. It's a pretty straightforward argument when you pull these three verses out like this. And um, these verses seem to focus on God's business toward us. Verse 5 is pretty clear. John begins with this wonderfully clear statement, one framed as a key part of our witness, something we confess, that God is light and not darkness. It's almost a kind of, duh, God is light and not darkness. And he seems really pedantic in pushing this through. But he's got reasons for this. I'll point out that Paul says something quite similar in 1 Timothy um, 6. 16, 15 and 16, uh, he who is the blessed and only sovereign, the king of kings and lord of lords, who alone possesses immortality and dwells in unapproachable light, whom no man has seen or can see. It's a, it's a statement of common faith that God dwells in this unapproachable light. And light, point, light points to God's perfection, God's holiness, God's otherness, God's illuminating power, uh, that he is this being who dwells in light. To stress then the absences of darkness, John uses a double negative. In him there is no darkness, nothing, is kind of how it shows up. If we put it in colloquial language, it would sound like this. Darkness, in him there ain't none. Okay, so ain't no darkness in God is how the kind of the double negatives work in Greek. So verse 7, let's go back to these. So uh, God is light, there's no darkness in him. And light provides this really clear bridge between the idea of verse 7 and verse 5. Now, if we walk in the light, we have fellowship. And the word walk is also the word for live. Uh, in Greek, it's peripateo. So if you've heard of someone who's peripatetic, always wandering around, uh, how you walk and how you live, they're the same idea um, in the Greek language. They overlap. So if we live, if we walk in the light, we have fellowship with one another. So living in the light of God is our source for fellowship as a community. This means that our Christian life is grounded somehow in the perfect light of God. And verse 7 also tells us how this works. It works because the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. We're allowed to be in the perfect light of God because we've been cleansed by Jesus' blood. Okay? Christ's sacrifice does this. And how do we access it? Verse 9 tells us quite clearly. If we confess our sins, he's faithful and just and forgives and cleanses us from all unrighteousness. I don't think any comment's necessary. If you confess you get access to the forgiveness. It's pretty straightforward stuff. And so verses 5, 7, and 9 tell a fairly straightforward story as far as I can tell. God, unapproachable, is made approachable because of Jesus' blood, and we gain access through confession. That seems to be what's going on. Now, 6, 8, and 10 give the kind of opposite of this. It's the alternative confession, the things we can say that muddy or mess up our access to God. So here, let's go to 6, 8, and 10. And we've got these three if statements. If we say we have fellowship with him and yet walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. If we say that we have no sin, we are deceiving ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we say that we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. Once again, pulling out these three verses makes their argument really crystal clear. Things we say that are opposite to the kind of speaking we should have in light of who God is. Now, these verses all repeat this phrase, if we say, 
and all these things somehow violate our fellowship and our confession and our community. So verse 6 says that we cannot claim to have fellowship with God if we live, again, live, walk, it's the same word, is walk in darkness. And so our conduct has the potential to violate our confession and our community. How you live has a way to violate your confession. Now verses 8 and 10 are quite similar. As far as I can tell, they're almost identical. 8 says that if we say we don't have sin, we're self-deceived. And 10 says that if we say we haven't sinned, past tense, we make Christ a liar and violate his word. So why does John repeat himself kind of largely in 8 and 10? There's some possible reasons. I'm not entirely sure. Possibly, there are people who believe that because of Christ, we no longer sin. People who, because they're in the community, they think, I've got Christ, I don't sin anymore. And John says, "Uh, no, (laughs) you still need this stuff. You can't pass it up. Uh, It's possible that there are some Jewish believers in the church who think that the sins we're dealing with are really just a Gentile thing. And the Jews, we've been covered by the law, so we don't have to do this. And John may be saying, if you think you haven't sinned, it doesn't apply to you. That's possible as well. It's possible that verse 10 merely mirrors verse 5. So verse 5 is God's perfection and light, and verse 10 is just an intensification. He felt the sense of patterning and wanted to reassert the pattern at the end of it. I'm not sure that you have to um, pick a side on this thing. I think it's a little confusing, and that's okay. Irrespective of how we parse out the parallels between 8 and 10, the overall point is clear. On the one hand, 579, is our confession that Christ is Lord. On the other hand, 6, 8, and 10 is our statements, the things that we say, whether through word or deed, that violate our confession of Christ, and with it, violating our fellowship with God and one another. So that's our focused look at the text. And let's pivot then and turn to our theology of community and confession. What is the theology of community and confession that emerges from a text like this? And I've got four subpoints to offer you today. So, subpoint number one is this is that confession anchors our access to forgiveness. Okay? Confession anchors our access to forgiveness. The first thing to say is just what confession means. To confess is to speak the truth. There's a lovely Greek word, you've got it in your notes. It's homologeo, all right? Homo means same, logeo means to speak or word. It's a homologue. It's to have an agreeing word, to speak the same, to speak a word of agreement, consciously contrasted with the verses 6, 8, and 10 of the things that if we say, whether by word or deed, there is a speaking with God that is contrasted to our speaking on our own. And I want to suggest to you that at its heart, confession is agreement with God. To confess is to agree with God, is to speak the same word that God speaks about himself, about us, about our world. That's the heart of confession. It's a truth speaking. So what's the truth we're commanded to confess? I think from the passage we've just read, this confession takes three forms. It's the truth about God. We confess that God is light, God is holiness, God is perfection, God is goodness. It's something that we confess. We confess, second, the truth about ourselves, that we live in sin and darkness and brokenness. That's also part of our confession. And the third part of our confession is the truth about what Jesus has done, that the blood of Christ, his sacrifice, provides our access to forgiveness. So it's a threefold confession, the truth about God, about ourselves, and about Christ. It's a threefold act of agreement with God. Now, what this means in practice is that some of our truth speaking is indeed the confession of sin, what we commonly think of as confession or in popular culture of going to confession, right? 
where you have to fess up to things. That's partly what's going on. But at the same time, sometimes it's the confession of God's goodness. To confess is to engage in truth speaking about God and who he is. I confess that God is good and sovereign and Lord and holy. And moreover, some of our confession is also the confession of Christ's work, telling the truth about what Christ has done for us on the cross. And I think we find we use the word confession in all these ways. I confess sin. I also confess Christ. And so we have an understanding that these are ways that we use this language. And I confess the truth about God when I agree with his understanding of our lives and his ultimate lordship over reality. So returning for a moment to Dietrich Bonhoeffer, the confessing church, the church opposed to the Nazis, is not a church that confesses the sins of Germany. That's not what made them the confessing church. They were, confe- they were a church that confessed the truth about the gospel in deeply hostile circumstances. They were confessing because they confessed the authority of God, and they confessed the truths about God, the truth about Christ, and with it, the truth about ourselves. That confession is what set them apart from the world. Now, I've said that confession is what anchors our access to forgiveness, and while I've just talked for a few minutes about what confession it is, I've not maybe explained to you how it is that confession gets us to forgiveness. I can give you two answers. First, there's the really clear statement of verses 5, 7, and 9 that confessing Christ's work is the foundation of our access to fellowship with the Father, and I'd like to suggest that we trust John on this one. He says, if we confess, we gain access to this stuff. And that's how he's teaching us. But secondly, the same verses also seem to point out that finding forgiveness in the Christian life depends pretty vitally on a commitment to truth speaking. If you won't tell the truth about your sin and about who God is or what Christ has done, you're going to have a hard time accessing what Christ offers. I should say that one more time. If you won't tell the truth about your sin or about who God is or about what Christ has done, you're going to have a hard time accessing what Christ offers. Truth speaking is pretty vital. I want to put this in as blunt terms as I can manage. If you won't admit something is wrong, Christ can't forgive it. He can't do it. There's a demand for self-honesty, for honest self-examination in light of the truth that appears to be bundled up with our receipt of Christ's sacrifice. And it's in this way that confession or truth speaking anchors our access to forgiveness. So, Confession gives us this anchor point, this access point. There's a second theological point we get to make, which is this. Confession is the foundation of community. Confession is also the foundation of community. The argument of these verses seems to make this actually quite clear. We confess, and that confession is the basis of our fellowship with God and then with one another. By extension, violating that confession by saying one thing while living another way, whether in darkness or past sin or current sin, violates not only our fellowship with God, but our fellowship as a church. Confession is the foundation not only of our relationship with God, but also with one another. And this is because community, our community, is designed to live in the image of God. Confession leads us into life with God, and as a consequence of that life, a life with God is life together. I should say that again as well. A consequence of our life with God is life together. The church is not an add-on to salvation. The church is what happens with salvation. Community is what Christ came to create. The church is what Jesus was here to build. He wasn't just about saving individual souls. He was about drawing a community out, and the basis of his work builds both things, both personal salvation and a community of faith. 
So let's come back to Bonhoeffer once again. And the second quote we'd read, which is, or maybe the first one. In confession, there takes place a breakthrough to community. Think about this, what he says now. Sin wants to be alone with people. It takes them away from the community. The more lonely people become, the more destructive the power of sin over them. Now, in Bonhoeffer's theology, and I should stress in mine as well, sin is fundamentally a matter of isolation, of alienation. And the reason for this is because original instance of sin, of Adam and Eve in the garden, was at its heart a shattering of community. If you recall, Adam and Eve live in a state of perfect community with one another, within themselves. They don't experience shame. In harmony with nature, their work is not toil. And then, of course, most importantly, in harmony with God. This pre-fall state of humankind was one of perfect communion, and the power of sin shattered that communion, creating shame in ourselves, uh, creating strife between the sexes, toil in our work, and of course, destroying our fellowship with God. And so what Christ's work does is restore the original intention of humanity by restoring us to fellowship with God. In other words, Christ's blood creates community by creating our point of access back into the life of the Trinity. Confession is that moment when we access the blood of Christ, restoring us to right relationship with God. And it is in this sense, as Bonhoeffer says, that confession is conversion. To access the life of God because of the blood of Christ is to be restored to the right relationship with the God of the universe. That's what it means to be converted, to enter into the truth of who God is as a community. As a result, confession becomes the foundation not only of our renewed community with God, but also of our new community as the church. Christ's blood creates both access to the Father and the new humanity, the people who claim Christ, us, in this room. Now, the hard corollary is this. If we want to shatter this community, the most effective way is through a lie, whether it's a lie about ourselves, a lie about God, or a lie about the work of Christ. That's how we break it. Now, with this in mind, I want to turn to a third teaching from the text. And this one may not be as explicit from the text, but I do think it's implied and present in the spirit of our discussion around confession. And that third truth is this. Truth speaking is painful, but good. Okay? Truth speaking is painful, but it's also good. In the boldest of possible terms, confession is hard it's hard to take a serious look in the mirror and be confronted with our shortcomings. It's hard to parse the difference between God and our ideas of God, between who Jesus is and what we want Jesus to do for us. It's hard to bring ourselves in alignment with the truth because we're bent. And it's hard most of all because lying is hardwired into our souls. We are all inveterate liars. We hate to have to be honest about things. Now, some of you in this room have children, but all of you have been children. I promise you, you were all once children, once upon a time. And do you remember how hard it was to have to fess up and tell the truth about something you'd done? For those of you who are parents, do you remember how difficult it is to try and extract a genuine confession from one of your kids when something's gone wrong? Now, what really happened here? And as the gaze gets more and more focused, the body begins to squirm more and more in front of you in these things. Do you remember how much you used to squirm and contort yourself to get out of telling the truth about something you'd done? Now, we can maybe chuckle 
because of the innocence of children, but I want to suggest that the habits of childhood are not so easily excised, that we are just as trenchant a bunch of liars in the face of the honesty required of us before the holiness of God and the work of Christ. We want to squirm our way out of the knowing gaze of our God. I've seen this resistance to truth speaking too many times as I counsel men and women, young and old, There comes a moment when you have to admit the fact that you have created some of the problems you are currently facing, and no spouse, child, parent, coworker, friend, or boss can be fully blamed for what's going on. The honest look demands honest self-reflection, and that's hard. Now, the root of this dishonesty is, of course, what the ancients called pride. Pride, in turn, is grounded in the fundamental disorder of our lives. We are creatures made by God, made to operate well from within a framework of submission to our God. And we are living in rebellion because we think we can run our lives better than the Creator. As long as we believe we know better than God, we are acting out of pride. And this is the source of the fundamental disorder in our lives. The whole architecture of our lives is built upon the lie of self-determination of pride. Uh, Just yesterday morning, I read this quote from A.W. Tozer, and I thought, how nice, I get to put it in my sermon tomorrow. This is fun. Here's something Tozer wrote. He said, in every Christian's heart, there is a cross and a throne, and the Christian is on the throne till he puts himself on the cross. If he refuses the cross, he remains on the throne. Perhaps this is at the bottom of the backsliding and worldliness among gospel believers today. We want to be saved, but we insist that Christ do all the dying. No cross for us, no dethronement, no dying. We remain king within the little kingdom of man's soul and wear our tinsel crown with all the pride of a Caesar. But we doom ourselves to shadows and weakness and spiritual sterility. Something powerful and hard about what uh, Tozer writes. But I think the words bear good fruit. And I want to point out for a moment that if we follow through with confession, what it creates is humility. Consider again the two main parts of our confession. Part one, we confess the truth about who God is. Part two, we confess the truth about who we are, which is people who desperately need Jesus. God is holy. I need Jesus. It's a wonderfully simple confession. In this respect, a commitment to truth-speaking is a recipe for humility. And humility, brothers and sisters, is the knowledge of who I am in light of who God is. It's not beating yourself up. It's not demeaning yourself. It's not making yourself small. It's knowing who you are in light of who God is. And this is the source of humility. And once you begin to take steps towards humility like this, there's actually nothing more joyful in the world. Because humility isn't beating yourself up, it's really knowing who you are, and that gives you a sense of confidence and self-assurance and indeed power, because you know when to rely on the power of God, and you know that you're not relying on your own power. I want to suggest to you that humility is only painful to the prideful. Humility is only painful to people who are filled with pride, because they don't know who they are, and they don't know who God is, and both things are threatening to who they think they are. The honest look. I've got a final point for us this morning, which is this, that Christian community thrives in light and starves in darkness. Christian community, us, this room, we thrive in light and we starve in darkness. Now, as a point from 1 John 1, this is fairly clear from the six verses we've read this morning. 
We thrive when we embrace the light. We starve when we live in darkness. But it's still worth stressing some of its effects right now. In the first place, there is a pure joy of truth speaking, of being people who tell the truth, people who know who they are because of the truth. There is the additional joy of being a community where because of our commitments to confession, there are no outstanding accounts between people. How relieving it is not to have to keep up appearances, hold grudges, or pretend we're okay when we're not. You don't have to be pretentious anymore. You can tell the truth. And there's a great peace and joy in being a truth-speaking community. One of my pastors used to say this phrase. I'm going to say it again and again probably for you in our time over these next many years together. The church is a hospital for sinners, not a museum for saints. Okay? The church is a hospital for sinners, not a museum for saints. Okay? It's the light of God's presence that keeps us in our holy hospital state. And it's only when we fled from God that we become a kind of museum for saints. If we're going to abide in love, part of that abiding means keeping short accounts with your brothers and sisters in the church. Short accounts between parents and children. Short accounts between husbands and wives. Short accounts between roommates and friends. Short accounts between pastors and people. When we make mistakes, we've got to own them up quickly and try to make it right. It's critical. Now, parallel to this, we have to note the utterly enervating power of deception, the power that starves churches. Churches die because they lie. They lie about who God is, about who they are, and about the work of Christ. And because of those lies, such churches generate pretensions. And this is fundamentally how we become museums for saints rather than hospitals for sinners. But deceptions like this always spread outwards. Churches that cannot be honest about their sins, whether it's the sins of their members or the sins of their leadership or the sins implicit in their structures, they multiply their harms toward their congregations and towards the mission of the gospel in the world. It's the magnification of lies. Instead, we are called to speak the truth about God, about ourselves, and about the work of Christ. And here, once again, as we begin to close, Bonhoeffer's situation during the rise of Nazi Germany this helps us to understand this deception. The Germans were lying about God, that he was theirs alone. The Germans were lying about themselves, that they were the master race. And the Germans were lying about Christ, that he was the Aryan king molded in their image. Germany needed to confess not just its particular sins, but confess who God is and who Christ is. And Bonhoeffer rightly saw that apart from the theological correction, the theological confession, no real correction could be made to his beloved nation. That adjustment in theology preceded the restoration of his nation. Now, it might be fascinating for you to learn, as it was for me, that during apartheid in South Africa, many faithful theologians took special comfort and insight from Bonhoeffer's theology as they attempted to voice a correction to the deceptive theology of the day. And I don't want you to be deceived. Apartheid was grounded in theology. It was a theological claim. Apartheid theology lied about God, that he was white. It lied about humanity, that whites were superior. And it lied about Christ, that he was a white savior. And once again, there was a theological confession, a truth-speaking, that was required to address this state of sin. Now, brothers and sisters, it's really easy to locate these kind of nuclear examples. Oh, Nazis and apartheid. And then miss the attempt to gaze at ourselves. Right? 
It's easy to point to those sinners over there and neglect the sin that's in the room because we also lie. We on the North Shore lie about who God is. We lie when he say that he's benign, that he doesn't really care, that he isn't all that concerned about sin. We lie about who we are, that we're actually pretty good people. We take care of the earth and we care about justice and we're certainly not as bad as those Americans down south. And we lie about Christ's work, that if we're good enough and give enough and serve enough, and if we're nice enough, maybe the blood of Christ won't matter that much at all. Brothers and sisters, our community survives or dies based on our willingness to tell the truth about who God is, the truth about ourselves, and the truth about Christ. Will we confess? If we don't, we can never abide in his love. So we have some time to confess now together, and then we get to do this communion meal together. And I'm going to give us about 15 or 30 seconds to be still before the Lord. And then I'm going to lead us in a prayer of confession. We'll put it up on the screen. Um, This is a traditional prayer. I didn't make it up, Um, but we'll read it together in a moment. So if you take a moment, would you bow your heads and let's be still before the Lord.